0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mecha Dragon, a podcast about all the geeky and nerdy stuff you love. Brought to you by Captain Geek and usually the dark nerd. Jess is currently out on a sabbatical. And so today, I'm your Captain Will, and I am joined by special co-host Eric Hansen of Screen Hub Entertainment, who is a writer and film critic. Welcome back to the show, Eric.
1: Hey, hey, great to be back as always.
0: Yeah, so today we are talking Starman, the 1984 film directed by John Carpenter, uh, starring none other than Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen. So we are real excited to talk about this movie today. We are going to first, just briefly, talk, as is our want, in a non-spoilery way at the very beginning, for just, you know, just briefly, just in case, you know, maybe there's some people out there who haven't seen this movie yet. And I'm here to tell you that, you know, having just watched it again last night, it really does hold up, crazily enough, as uh, you know, as this Carpenter movie from nineteen eighty four. So we're just gonna talk for a few minutes in a non-spoilery way, I will announce when we move on to the heavy spoilers. But with that all said, Eric, what what are your non-spoilery introductory thoughts about this movie, Starman?
1: Uh, Starman is, I think, one of the best films of John Carpenter's filmography. It's certainly one of the most unique, as Carpenter, who is often you know viewed as a horror you know sci- a horror director, actually manages to weave a very tender. And very genuine, you know, love story between these two characters. It's essentially the
0: movie is E.T. aimed at an older audience. Like if Elliot and uh, E.T. had fallen in love and wanted to hook up, basically. Yeah, because that, that doesn't <laughs> sound creepy at all, Captain. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, like the the interesting
1: thing. OK, so for those who haven't seen the movie, the premise of Starman is an alien creature while traveling through space, comes across the Voyager probe, which uh, for those of you who know, has a golden record containing, you know, directions and an invitation to come to earth. And the this entity accepts our invitation, you know, arrives on earth is promptly crash uh, is promptly you know shot down and crashes in the in the wilderness. And in order to blend in, he takes the shape of a of a widow, of a widow's recently deceased husband, uh, played by Jeff Bridges, and the widow is played by Karen Allen. And then you know he enlists her help to rendezvous with his people, you know, so he can leave Earth. And as he's learning about our culture and society, she is working through the grief of losing her husband. While palling around with this creature that
0: looks exactly like her husband, it's a very, mm-hmm. very interesting movie. And yeah. I think. And meanwhile, the as characters. they're making this sort of journey together, the government is trying to stop them. Let's just leave it at that for now, um, <laughs> where that's concerned. So, yeah, it is a really fascinating movie and so, so different from John Carpenter's other work, really. I mean, it came, you know. Fairly early on in his career, I guess you could say, but he had already made at least five films before this five or six or seven films before this, right? Um, well, he made... I, can, I can name them all. Ah, all right, doing... so <laughs>
1: there is uh, one is Dark Star, two is Assault on Precinct 13, three is Halloween, four is The Fog, five is, is Escape from New York, six is The Thing. Seven is Christine. I believe this is the eighth film in his filmography, and that's of course not counting. That's of course not counting TV movies because I know he did. Right, uh, right. He did a couple of TV movies,
0: including Elvis, which mm-hmm. starred uh, Kurt Russell as Elvis Presley. Yeah, he did. Someone's watching me and Elvis, nineteen seventy eight and nineteen seventy nine, respectively. Uh, prior to uh, making uh, Starman, so yes, I mean it's it's definitely fe- it's definitely the most like. I guess, romantic and, and tender of his movies. I, I certainly can't think of another one that has the same sort of, like, optimistic heart to it, if if that makes sense. You know, the, certainly there's some romance in, like, you know, uh, Big Trouble in Little China and even, you know, some other ones, but I just don't... It, none of them are actually, like, romances. I mean, I think there's a case to be made that this is, like, a sci-fi romance film oh oh definitely it
1: definitely is a love story you know a lot, a lot of the best science fiction stories ever are love stories a lot of people forget that terminator one is a romance <laughs> <laughs> yeah none, none of the sequels are but that that's something that the the that's uh you know one of the qualities of the first one that i quite enjoy and, and it
0: and terminator being terminator one thing. being a romance is in fact fundamental to the plot of the entire franchise if you think about that pretty, as well. pretty much so interesting but yeah i mean So Starman, with all that said, that kind of lays the the groundwork for where we're at with it, you know, and, and interestingly, like watching the movie from the very beginning, you could be forgiven, you know, in the first like five minutes or so for thinking that this might actually be another horror movie if you knew nothing about it.
1: Oh, yeah, it definitely does have, you know, a very atmospheric opening with, you know, the probe going through space and you hear the Rolling Stones
0: playing, you know, that's the first image of the
1: movie is... Yeah, it it does play some
0: material that was on that golden record, because they also sent like music and, you know, and and greetings in different languages and things like that.
1: Yep, and uh, yeah, because of that, the film actually does have a nice little cameo by the son of Carl Sagan, whose voice says... You know, hello from the children of planet Earth, and Carl Sagan is somebody we will be
0: talking about in a bit because he
1: actually has a very interesting tie to this movie. Interesting,
0: yeah. Um, so let's just talk uh, in general about a, cu- a couple things. What so what is it that you what is it that you think makes so? First of all, I think we're both coming down on the on the side of we we really enjoyed this movie, but what do you think is it that really stands out that makes this movie so? Uh, so good and and has made it hold up over the years
1: well uh, I think um, the chemistry between Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen is impeccable Mm -hmm. Jeff Bridges actually received an Oscar nomination for his role in this film the only the only John Carpenter film to get an Oscar nomination at least the only feature film I believe he won an Oscar for a short film he did at one point Um, his performance in the film is very very interesting bridges actually studied birds while preparing for the role so he has these kind of weird quick micro movements with his head you know like a bird looking around and kind of observing his world and the interesting thing about the movie is when you watch it you actually do start to see the earth from his perspective and Mm -hmm. see how weird we are (laughs) and it's it's actually it like you don't really get that sense in a movie like et like in Starman, it really makes you relate very heavily to this character of, you know, he's the stranger in the strange land and the strange yeah, land to him is that. the thing yeah. that's fa- – and the strange land to him is something that familiar, that's familiar to us. And I think that level of empathy does make the film very
0: interesting where you see him try to mm-hmm. figure things out that we do. And not only is is Jeff Bridges in his uh, performance and, and frankly, you know, the direction of the, the, the film and the writing of it as well. But I mean what Jeff Bridges is able to do – And kind of bringing you along and helping you to see you know our own world through his eyes, but also It's not just that right like he slowly over the course of the film becomes more I guess you could say in tune with an understanding of you know human beings and you know our world and our society and you know he He becomes humanized, maybe is the word that I'm looking for, over the course of the movie. And it's a very distinct arc. And it's, I think it's just a tribute to his performance that, you know, he starts as kind of this, like, you can tell that there's, like, an alien in there, like, driving the human body, you know. (laughs) He's not – he doesn't seem totally connected. But somehow, even while he's still maintaining – uh, you know, the believability that he is an alien that knows almost nothing about being human, yet there are these moments where the emotion or, you know, the intention at least really shines through and you begin to to empathize with him and you begin to, at least for me, you know, I, I begin to really feel connected to this growing connection between, you know, these, these two characters that were on this sort of strange road trip together.
1: You do really pick up a lot of great subtleties in his performance as he starts to kind of learn more and more about you know how things work on Earth. Like when he, when he he first appears, he has a tendency to overemphasize inflections in words, like mm-hmm. want to be driven, Arizona maybe. Like yeah. it's, it's, very, it's very robotic, but as the movie goes on, he starts to speak more and more like a person. He relaxes the inflections more and it's even like subtle stuff like that is something that most actors wouldn't think about. And it's really mm-hmm. a testament to Jeff Bridges' talent as an actor and why this is, I think, one of his absolute best performances. It's beautiful. Performance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I would say that Karen Allen uh, ha- does a really great performance in this movie as well. Oh, absolutely. This is a career highlight for her. I would argue that for her,
1: this is probably second only to Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is lovely, lovely. You know, you
0: really believe that she lost her husband like, you know, like nine months ago or however long it was. And she just really grounds, I think, the entire movie in a way that if that role had been miscast... That it would end up coming off as like a schlocky mess. I mean, I guess you could say that for both, you know, lead actors. But uh, OK, so but I think, you know, th- th- that kind of describes the performances that really elevated the material. But do you have anything to say about the the writing or the direction of this movie that really helped it sort of um, excel and, and become this classic?
1: The interesting thing about this film is I do feel that Carpenter is trying to capture a little bit of that Spielberg whimsy. He doesn't quite get it, but I think he taps into something that's more uniquely him. Like it is a much more Spielbergian plot on the surface, but I think that he he manages to make it feel more grounded and real and as a result when something miraculous happens, it seems to have a little bit more weight to it mm-hmm. somehow at least in the case of this particular film like a lot of carpenter trademarks you know like the that slick dean Cundy cinematography a lot of you know stuff using panaglide you know carpenter is loves panaglide especially in his earlier movies you don't really see a lot of that in this film cuz i think he was starting to transition away from it it's somehow like it 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 does have his stamp all over it even though it's a much more optimistic Optimistic film than most of most of his other movies, which are quite yeah, cynical. it really
0: was interesting to see his you know kind of signature style, even though it's you know constantly evolving. But uh, you you know for me at least, I could tell okay, this is a Carpenter film, but it it was kind of juxtaposed with this much more optimistic, heartful story that you're not used to really seeing from the you know the mass of his filmography. And I thought, what well, you know, it was just so interesting. Because yeah, I know I know
1: Carpenter, had, he described himself, um, he was interviewed in the 90s when he was prepping a, a remake of Creature from the Black Lagoon, which sadly never got made. But he, he said that he's a short-term pessimist, but a long-term optimist, hmm. uh, which I think is a, it's pretty much my philosophy too. But, uh, but uh, you do kind of see more of the long-term optimism in this film as opposed to most of his other movies, which are
0: deal heavily with short-term pessimism. The arc of history bends toward justice type of a thing yeah absolutely you know picking up on something you said it like a minute ago uh, I really felt like everything that happened even the most fantastic things in this movie really were earned and nothing felt (sighs) what am I trying to say like they really planted all of the seeds Uh, And all of the all of the clues and things that were necessary for other things to be paid off in a more fantastical way later, if that makes sense. And so even though you have this movie, you know, that's about this, uh, you know, alien that's inhabiting this, like, I guess you could say a cloned body of this of this man. And they're, you know, going across country, uh, sometimes using his special abilities to, uh, you know, navigate their way through obstacles like None of it felt like he was overpowered. None of it felt like, you know, none of it felt cheap. You know, everything felt earned, I guess you could say, is is what I have been thinking about it. So it was a very satisfying, you know, story experience in that way for me.
1: Like uh, the way they limit him in a way that feels appropriate is they establish right away that he can only do a certain amount of, quote unquote, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: miracle miracles, yeah. I guess because he the this entity has brought with it the this type of gear that basically look like it's look, looks like this collection of gray marbles essentially and once he uses one it's over now are the capabilities of each of these devices thoroughly explained no but you see they can do things like generate heat uh, produce maps communicate over long distances you know revive dead matter stuff like that but you can you know he can only do it a certain amount of time so he's got to be careful with how he uses mm-hmm. them and occasionally the movie will actually use these things to develop his character you know so yeah. it's not just about him doing stuff to
0: look flashy but it reveals something about quite, his personality. quite masterfully we'll I, I should say later. okay so I think um, I think we've talked enough about uh, you know non spoilery stuff so I would just say Let's let's move on to the spoiler section, but real quick first, let's just rate kind of the movie. So, out of ten alien spaceships, how many uh, alien spaceships would you give this movie, Eric? I would give it at the
1: very least an an eight and a half, mm. if not if not a perfect ten. It's kind of hard to say because you you do wonder like why a film like this didn't catch on as much as as much at the time it was made. You know, maybe I think. I think cinematically, sometimes we do have a bias against, you know, more underground cult films. I do think this film definitely needs to be rediscovered, though. I would say, hmm, you know, hell with it. It's a 10. This is a 10. This is a 10. It is one of Carpenter's best movies. Carpenter's one of my favorite directors. And I personally prefer this movie to E.T. I like E.T. a lot. But I think the themes of this movie are a bit more universal than the ones in E.T. And I think that Mm -hmm. that has the potential to
0: create a movie with much wider appeal. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to give it a solid nine. Uh, I reserve 10 for, I mean, I don't know. I would probably only rate a handful of movies in the entire history of cinema as a 10, at least that I've seen thus far. But, you know, with that said, I mean, a nine for sure. I basically agree with what you're saying it's hard, you know when talking about the comparison to E.T. it's hard for me to compare movies that are so different and in, in terms of I mean they are a similar genre you know they they have certain superficial similarities in the plot but I you know I really do see E.T. is more of a kids movie even well family movie I guess whereas Starman you're right I think does have some more universal themes it's got You know some more mature subject matter and things like that but they they exist on slightly different planes for me but i i do really appreciate them both funny story though uh that i wanted to bring up about this movie is that uh originally when columbia was developing this movie they were also they also were about to at some point they optioned uh, a spielberg uh script called night skies and then there was a bunch of stuff happened basically and they decided to let go night skies in favor of doing Starman because they wanted something for a more mature audience. And then it turned out they changed the title of Night Skies to E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And that became a wildly successful movie that was the highest grossing film of its time.
1: (laughs) And uh, And obviously it took a a bit for Starman to get developed because E.T. came out in 1982. And it's often been cited as a potential mm -hmm. reason that John Carpenter's *The Thing* might not have been too successful when it initially came out, although I do think the story of how why *The Thing* didn't wasn't a big hit is a little bit more complicated than it just came out at the same time as *ET*. Um, and then, of course, it took *Starman* a couple more years to get made. But uh, Spielberg himself has said that he's a fan. You know, he 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 called *Starman* a wonderful movie
0: in uh, some of the C- *ET* supplemental material. And that it is. Well, we can agree with Spielberg there for sure. Okay, so I think that wraps up our non-spoilery section. Let us move into heavy spoilers. If you do not want spoilers for a movie from 1984, this would be the time to pause this podcast, go watch the movie, and then come back and press play again. So, all right, with that said, let's let's hit it, Eric. So what are you, what are you really dying to get into about the conversation about this movie?
1: One of the reasons this movie hits really hits so close uh, to home for me is you know I'm on the spectrum I sometimes don't know the best way to talk to people and that's Jeff Bridges whole character in this movie is trying to figure out how to properly communicate with somebody as somebody with Asperger's I found his you know social blunders and struggles to be very very relatable you know relatable on a very on a very deep level and I think that's one of the reasons this is you know one of my favorite Carpenter films because it really hits close to home for me. Interesting,
0: yeah. I, you know, I saw this movie originally when I was uh, pretty young, and uh, I must have seen it on te- on TV because I almost a thou- I'm not like a thousand percent positive that I never saw it in the movie theater. In fact, I had not before I watched it last night. I hadn't seen it in many, 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 many years. I mean, I'm sure I I've seen the movie like you know at least two or three times in my life. But uh, it it occurred to me that I was like, holy cow! I I don't think I've ever seen this in widescreen before, <laughs> you know. Because back in the day, in the '80s, I would have had an older TV set that was you know four by three and you know basically square. And uh, yeah, I, it was just really a thrill to kind of watch it again. And uh, I had I had rented it on uh, Amazon Prime, and uh, the picture quality was amazing. Like sometimes you know you go to watch an older movie. On online streaming somewhere, and like nobody's cleaned it up since the you know since they pulled like some old print out of you know the dust bin and like did a digital transfer, but like it actually looked really good, and um, it was I like I wasn't sure honestly because I hadn't seen it in so long how it was gonna be. I was like, cause you know there's movies you watch when you're a kid and you enjoy them as a kid, and then you might watch them later and be like, ooh, ooh. That's not. That doesn't hold up. But this one really did. Well, I, I got a couple movies like that. Uh, I can name plenty
1: of films from my youth that I thought were the greatest thing ever when I was young, and then now they have revealed themselves to be vapid, empty, patronizing pieces of filth. Starman <laughs> yes.
0: is. Starman is thankfully not one of those. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I mean, I'm sure we could probably do a whole episode on movies that didn't hold up, you know. But, but this one, I was, I mean, really pleased with it, and you know it. Something and it even, you know, it still even has like a sort of a it has moments of like schlockiness, you know, moments of sort of like 80s, like slightly low budget, like, you know, I don't know whether it's. It's just an artifact of the times or of the budget or of the fact that it's like, you know, Carpenter's Crew that's used to doing these, you know, movies that bend a little bit more towards camp and horror normally. But, I mean, I, I was delighted with some of those moments. <laughs> they made it a more entertaining experience for me. But I, it was just something that I noticed that I wouldn't necessarily have noticed as a kid. Like, I think the schlockiest, the campiest line in the whole movie is when... God, what's the scientist guy's name? Uh,
1: Mark Sherman.
0: Uh, is that the actor's name?
1: Oh, no, the, the the character's name is Mark Sherman. The actor's name is uh, Charles Martin Smith. And yeah. interesting thing about him once you're done talking about his line.
0: Okay, sure. Anyways, I love Charles Martin Smith. Y- you know, you'll recognize him immediately if you've ever seen any movies from the 80s and the 90s. But uh, there's this moment where he's sort of having, uh, you know, the moment where he protests his government superior that you know they're planning to capture the alien and like do tests on him and stuff because there's like this bet like this like gurney with straps on it that he finds. And uh, the guy the guy turns to him and says something like, you're a man of science some scientific accomplishment. Don't you recognize an emergency autopsy room when you see one? And I just had to break out in laughter uh, upon hearing that line because it was pretty campy. But I mean, I don't think that the movie is overall campy. I mean, maybe it has a few moments and maybe that's just because that's how a lot of uh, dialogue was written in the 80s. But um, nevertheless, I got a little I I got a little giggle out of that kind of stuff during during my watch through.
1: Interesting thing about uh, the character of Mark Sherman is he's he's based very heavily off of Carl Sagan. Not only do Uh. not only do they have, you know, similar clothing and, you know, hairstyle and everything. The movie makes a note to mention two things. One, that he worked on the gold record, which Carl Sagan did. And there's a specific line where they, where they reference the fact that Mark Sherman's character works at Cornell, which is where Carl Sagan worked. Uh, so, like, the, the character is essentially Carl Sagan, and they just changed the name. that's so awesome (laughs) so when when i watched when i like um and i was not familiar with carl sagan when i first saw the movie but uh when i got the blu-ray from shout factory which by the way is the best release of this film ever you know if you want to see this movie i would highly recommend the blu-ray like i immediately started picking up on all these little cues to the point that by the end of the movie i'm i literally saw carl up on screen and it was great that's amazing i love carl sagan yeah there's a great moment you know uh, towards the end of the movie, when uh, Sherman, you know, allows, you know, allows, you know, Starman and Jenny Hayden to escape, and this general comes up to him and says, uh, "What have you done, Mr. Sherman? How dare you?" Blah blah blah. And Sherman, who smokes Cuban cigars, says, "Well, as much as I hate to stoop to symbolism," and then he just blows a puff of smoke in his face. <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah. He says "blow me" without actually saying "blow me," and it's a great <laughs> moment, beautiful <laughs> moment.
0: Yeah. You know, I love that actor, uh, Charles Martin Smith. He's been in so—I mean, I haven't seen him anything lately. I have no idea what he's been doing with himself for the past, like, 15 years or whatever. But he was a care he was an actor that popped up so many times in these, especially genre movies, I think, from the 80s and the 90s. And he's just always been a delight. To watch, in my opinion.
1: I know he's uh, he's in the Untouchables. Uh, I grew familiar with him because he's one of the main characters in George Lucas's American Graffiti. He's right. great in that. Uh, then there's uh, he he's actually he actually has a very small role in Deep Impact. He's the scientist he's the scientist that finds the comet at the start of the movie, then yeah. careens off the cliff before he can warn the world. He did play a scientist
0: a lot, wasn't he in Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Too? I don't believe so. I'd have to look it up. Um, i could i could be wrong i mean but those are the type of roles that he would you know that he would tend to play actually i'm just i'm just gonna have to look it up really quick because yeah you may be thinking of
1: the uh the interpreter for uh francois truffaut perhaps
0: oh he was on an episode of fringe oh that's right
1: because i know the interpreter uh, in uh in uh, close encounters is a different actor yeah so he he wasn't in that i was (laughs) i don't know why i thought
0: he was in that one but lance um, henriksen is in it in a very small role but not Charles Mont Smith. That's true. That's true. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. He was in Tales from the Crypt. He was in Picket Fences. Oh my God, that show was nuts. Um, uh, Northern Exposure. Yeah, he did a bunch of TV as well. X Files, Doctor Osborne, uh, in F Emasculata, 1995 episode, whichever one that is.
1: Oh yeah, the 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 like exploding pustule disease.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Wow, that's good memory, man. Yep, Deep Impact. Anyways, point being, uh, I'm I'm a fan of his, and I was very happy to see him in this movie. Uh it was very cool to see and that. He's basically playing Carl Sagan, which is and really cool. He's basically cool. playing Carl Sagan, which makes it even that much more awesome. Okay, I want to talk about the transformation near the beginning of the movie where he's basically growing the body of Scott, you know, that the alien implants itself inside of. Because I was really able to appreciate. And this, you know, when I watched it last night, how incredibly carefully John Carpenter assembled that, you know, that sequence with special effects, because, you know, obviously we're talking about 1984. I'm certain that this movie didn't have an enormous blockbuster size budget, (laughs) you know. And of course, you know, by this time, Carpenter had already done the thing. And, you know, as we know, the special and practical effects in that movie were just like to this day, they stand up as, like, mind-blowingly really great work, you know? Oh, yeah. The thing is, one of the
1: quintessential practical effects movies, the monsters in that movie are absolutely revolting, but they look so real.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, he. this is the type of experience that he brings to to Starman. And just very judicious use of live-action, you know, untreated shots from you know uh, the the baby was actually like a like a puppet or something uh, but it looked pretty good and and then there's like a little boy and like probably like a young young man like just from behind looking at his back ultimately until you know finally you see um Jeff Bridges but you know there's just there's only a few shots in between where they actually have special effects you know there is there's like a shot where the the boy is laying down on the ground and you see like Uh, him growing and then it cuts to like a close up of legs and the legs are growing but it looks more like you know somebody's just like pushing the leg forward maybe that's what was happening and then there's the shot where the little boy looks at her and the head like ages a little bit like just a little bit. And yeah, what they did for that sequence
1: is they had like uh, they had a, a series of puppets that were like for the, for like different stages of development, which is funny because each shot is only like a half second. Yeah, exactly. But, but at the time, you know, and you you couldn't do it in computers, so you'd have to make a puppet for like each half second shot, and very, very tedious work. You would spend like you know weeks on this one thing, and then a half second later, and its role in the movie's done.
0: Yeah, and I so. I think that the the sound design of that sequence was really effective, too, because there's this, like, sort of strange sound of, like, stretching or, like, something, you know, that you're hearing, like, bones crunching, you know, flesh folding, and that's initially what wakes up um, Jenny's character, right? Jenny Hayden. (laughs) Jenny Hayden. That's initially what wakes her up, and she kind of goes, and this is the moment where, you know, you could be for forgiven for thinking that this might turn into a horror movie, right? Because so far all that's happened is like aliens have intercepted our probe, they send something down, it gets shot down some weird, you know energy based being flies into her home, starts looking through her stuff and you know she wakes up to this eerie light and strange noises in her home and so, I mean it very well you know know, could also be the beginning of a horror movie in a sense, but she goes in there and she kind of witnesses this this uh growth uh you know from the baby to the uh to the fully grown you know version of scott and uh god i just i just thought it was really effective because you know the 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 sound design really fills in the blanks of where they couldn't get you know cgi (laughs) video of you know the the growth process you know the the money shots of the transition uh and i thought it just got was put together exceptionally well for what you know the resources that were available to them at the time
1: oh yeah absolutely you know carpenter for the most part carpenter is the kind of guy that likes to you know show you less i -hmm. think uh, like uh, a lot of people forget halloween has no blood in it at all like psycho was gorier than halloween Mm -hmm. and you know honestly you know the inclusion of gore in movies like you know say the fog and halloween 2 it was just you know caving to pressure at the perceived demand of audiences for more inclusion of gore even the thing would probably be his bloodiest movie but even then most of the thing is the creature hemorrhaging as opposed to people like showing blood guts right right and even his later movies like Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, you know, they they still take a less is more approach. And even in this scene, he does take that approach. It's like he doesn't want to indulge in it because it's more about the characters than the effect, I would say.
0: You know, Eric, yeah. I am convinced now we have to do a whole John Carpenter series of episodes on all of his movies because I can't think of a single one right now that I wouldn't want to do a whole episode on. Oh, I can introduce you to some good ones. I got, I got all of the, all of the essentials on Blu-ray. I think I've seen almost all of them, but you know, you mentioned the Shout Factory uh, uh, disc home video release uh, for this movie, Starman, and I, I think I'm gonna have to get it. Shout Factory makes like the greatest, <laughs> the greatest like DVDs and you know Blu-ray editions of these old uh, films. Uh, I have like a, shot. a lot of these. A lot of these films that you know don't
1: get treated well by you know major studios that you know are more underground cult hits that they're not willing to put money into. Mm-hmm. And Shot Factory's been getting their hands on a lot of them, including the bulk of John Carpenter's filmography, and has done these marvelous, marvelous, marvelous you know Blu-ray releases of the films. I know some of them the rights are expiring. Like I know um, Escape from New York is going to someone else soon, but fortunately there's a lot of copies of their their version of escape from New York have out to get there that which right album. away <laughs> yeah like you can get you can get the steel book and the uh, and the regular edition unfortunately um, I don't think it would be too hard to get a copy of Escape from New York they're probably all over eBay but uh, they did a fantat they did a fantastic version of Escape from New York it's wonderful.
0: Yeah, I phew, I'm going to have to do that. I mean, I mean there's no way we're not doing an episode on the thing for sure. There's no way we're not doing. And this is not John Carpenter, but it's a sh- another Shout Factory release. Um 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh yes, which is definitely a uh playing a big part in both of our lives at the moment. One of the best horror films of all time. Okay, we're, we're getting off of Starman. Back to Starman. Okay, back to Starman. Back to Starman. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I just wanted to mention that sequence because I thought it was just really well done. I mean, okay, sure, some of the, like, you know, effects, obviously, like, in an Avengers movie or something, they would, they would have a more polished version of that, but, like, whatever, it's still it's still effective it still does what it needs to do the movie is still good and doesn't suffer for it you know so okay so what's what's a particular you know aspect of this film or uh you know uh sequence or something that you really wanted to talk about
1: Uh, there's uh like there's a couple of sequences i would like to you know start off with Uh, one is just a great little bit that shows him really trying to figure out how you know talking with people works like um... He's figuring out lingo, like holding up his thumb and going, you know, take it easy. He thinks that that's a a greeting. So he goes into a, a bathroom and then sees a guy pissing and then he just smiles at him and says, take it easy. And then the guy goes up to him and sticks his middle finger in his face and goes up yours, pal. And then the uh, rest of the and then the rest of the movie, he thinks that that's what you're supposed to do when someone says yeah. take it easy. So whenever yeah. someone says, so whenever someone says, hey, take it
0: easy, he goes up yours. Like he thinks that that's <laughs> yeah. what you're supposed to yeah. do. And it and gets him in great, trouble. You know. It's a great, cute little moment. It's fantastic. Like there's so many moments in this movie, like that bathroom scene, that are simultaneously like amusing in some way, like, you know, between sort of like mildly amusing to like, I'm going to get a really good, like chuckle out of that. But at the same time, they totally work for the story, are totally organic to the you know, to the character arc. You know, it wasn't something that was just thrown in for a laugh that's like unsupported by the rest of the story. It was like great. It's like when he's standing in there and he just smiles at the dude taking it a piss, the guy looks at him and like rolls his eyes and goes, There's one in every there's one every damn place you go, or something like that. Uh, there's you know, a me. there's another,
1: you know, another brief moment where um, you know, Mark Sherman, the character based off of Carl Sagan, when he lets Jenny and Starman go. She goes up and, you know, kisses him on both of his cheeks and says, thank you. And then he and then she walks away and then Starman comes up and he does the same thing because he thinks that that's what you're supposed to do
0: with the with the state trooper watching, you know, there, too. That was. Yeah, that was good stuff. Um,
1: One of my favorite sequences in the movie, which, again, you know, goes to, you know, his abilities being used to develop his character. And it's a great pivotal moment for him and Jenny is at the uh is at the the truck stop where um they they run afoul a hunter who has just killed a deer, and Jenny you know is you know ter- initially terrified of this this creature she wants to get away from him, but she you know witnesses him using one of his you know little devices to bring this deer back to life and it's a very beautiful moment. Oh, t- and, t- turning turning point for her character too. Yeah. Yeah, and that's when she decides that you know this creature is actually not not something to be afraid of because she witnesses an act of compassion. You know, he, he wastes, uh, he, he doesn't really waste. Waste is not the proper word. He uses. He expends one of his very limited resources. Yeah. And an act of kindness, you know,
0: it's, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful moment. And incidentally, yeah, and I, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's just so important to, uh, to mention. And, and you had said this uh, a little bit ago, but you know, it real the, the film, really establishes in a very clear way at the very beginning that he only has a certain number of these like little metal like miracle balls if you want to call them that which is his alien equipment that he uses to perform these great feats of w- Whatever, you know, these these little miracles these little, you know Phenomenal things that he's able to do like bring the deer back to life You know later he uses one to basically heal her and bring her back to life. Yeah, which which again, you know, that
1: scene has a that scene where he brings the deer back ha, is serves multiple functions. You know, it not mm-hmm. only develops him as a character and not only bridges a gap between the two, but it also foreshadows. Hey, this is one of the things exactly. that these devices are capable of. So when he does it to bring her back, it doesn't feel like a cheat. Like that, that one scene exactly. is so clear and concise. It's a great bit of screenwriting.
0: It's yeah. It's there's such a density of. Uh... Of information and and story beats and and purpose like in each page of this i think it's incredibly well written
1: incredibly well written and uh, incidentally like this one thing i've been trying to say for the last five minutes because it's one of Sorry. the coolest things ever <laughs> okay the the hunter that they run into at the gas station is an actor named ted white um he's he had appeared in a number of westerns with john wayne he has a small role in romancing the stone with michael douglas and uh, oh. kathleen turner i i believe but his most notable role is that Hunter plays Jason in Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, which I consider <laughs> which I consider to be the best of the Friday the Thirteenth movies. And he he is fantastic in the role of Jason. By the way, he is the best Jason bar none. That's awesome. He's, he's not just a stuntman; he's an actual actor, and he really brings a lot of personality to the character. And there's a great little bit of you know, onset trivia where. Um, where you know Ted White is was being interviewed about this movie uh, about Starman, and uh, you know he he was talking with you know some of the people on set. They're like, "Hey Ted, we heard you just did a movie." He's like, "Oh yeah, I did a little nothing picture." He's like, "Well, what was it called?" He's like, "Oh, it was called Friday the Thirteenth. I played this Jason guy." And then <laughs> next thing you and then the next day they were they, uh, they shot at that truck stop for several days. The next day, a bunch of people showed up to get his autograph, and Jeff Bridges like, "Hey his Ted, eye-
0: you're hey Ted, you're famous man." <laughs> That's awesome. I really got to get that Star- shout factory release of Starman now. Uh, that's yeah. that's great. Yeah, I um, he's a pretty tall dude too. Oh yeah, T- Ted White.
1: You know, very uh, a, ver- a very great you know actor, and that's one of the th- reasons I think he's so great as Jason. Is he's not just a stuntman. He really he he's really underrated as an actor. He's great as Jason. He's great in this movie. He's great in Romancing the Stone. Just. He's, who was in great...
0: Romancing the stone? Was he one of the thugs that was pursuing them? He is uh, Grogan, the cowboy, at the very start of the movie. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, who who she who um
1: who the, who the girl kills before she runs away with Jesse? Yeah, that's Ted oh, White.
0: Oh, that's
1: that another was movie. The, I wouldn't. That re-watch. was the end of Grogan.
0: <laughs> yeah, awesome. Okay, so I do wanna let's let's get back to the script a little bit, and specifically these little miracle balls of his, because kind of regarding what we were just saying about the the script being kind of dense with purpose and information and, you know, scenes serving multiple purposes and things like, those balls were so versatile in the story because, you know, they demonstrated his sort of special powers and specialness as an alien. They uh, were tools that were used to overcome certain obstacles, although, you know, they certainly were not all powerful. And also, you know, because of the fact that he has a limited number of them, you know, and that they were manifested as these like physical things that you could like count, you know, how many he has. The more he uses them, the more uh, I, I think that it, it served a purpose in some sense of like raising the tension and the stakes. Right. Because when he gets down, and he's got two left. You know, he he has this moment where he like looks at them. And he sees that he's only got a couple left and he's still like pretty far away from the crater the place where he needs to go to hitch a ride home but yet he he decides to use one of them to to bring back jenny hayden and at the end you know she gets the last one he
1: does not mm-hmm. use them all he actually gives one to her which could have been could be viewed as a nice little setup for a sequel but um, i just think it's a great capper on the story
0: I absolutely agree. Although, as you're probably aware, they did make a Starman television show in 1986 and 1987. (laughs) Which, which funnily enough, uh, Starman
1: was played by the main guy from the airplane movies. He was played by Ted! Ted!
0: (laughs) That would be... Uh... Robert Hayes, I believe. The Robert Hayes. Is. Yeah, it was starring Robert Hayes and Christopher Daniel Daniel Barnes. And uh, the uh, synopsis of the show from IMDb states, an alien returns to Earth years after an earlier visit to reunite with his Earth son, and together they search for the alien human, alien's human wife. Uh, so I don't believe I ever saw it, actually, but I wouldn't mind uh, checking it out. It doesn't have the greatest rating or anything, but it's just more out of curiosity than anything else. I just probably wouldn't be
1: able to stop seeing, you know, the guy from Airplane. Like when I when I wa- when I watch now, granted, when I watch Starman, I don't see the dude from The Big Lebowski. Although that right. would be that would be hilarious if that was the dude. But but yeah, if I watch the TV show, I don't think I'd be able to stop seeing Ted from Airplane. Oh, another fun little fact, uh, and this is sadly something that's not included on the Blu-ray, but. Um, Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen did do a music video for this film that you can find <laughs> on YouTube. That you can find on YouTube where they actually sing, um, sing that song uh, "Dream" that the two of them were singing on some of the home movies that Jenny Hayden is watching at the start of the film. Oh. So, you, so we actually see, uh, you know, get to see, you know, Starman and Jenny Hayden have a duet. It's very nice, and I
0: wish they included it on the damn disc, but they didn't. Well, I guess that's why we have YouTube. Uh, maybe I'll uh, maybe you can uh, hook me up with that link and I'll put it in the show notes for (laughs) for this episode of the podcast Um, yeah that's cool I'm gonna have to go watch that but so okay is there anything else that we can talk about regarding the the construction of the story and and how it was executed or you know sort of John Carpenter's imprint on the movie or how that kind of figures into his uh, filmography because I know you had a lot of things to say about those sort of aspects
1: like, uh, the film is actually very progressive, you know, in, in terms of how it portrays the character of Jenny, because she is, you know, very assertive. You know, she does try to ma- maintain, you know, her personhood through this whole thing and That's demands, a good point. D- demands it to be treated fairly. And, uh, I think perhaps the most progressive moment had it been handled by a director who wasn't as skilled, it could have been, you know, very problematic. Cause there's a bit when she and Starman, they actually do engage in, you know, the act of physical love and, uh. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit when he mentions that, you know, she mentions earlier that she was infertile and then he mentioned and then he mm. tells her after they've done this that, you know, I've given you a baby, which, you know, most movies would have had her immediately say, oh, I have a baby. This is great. Instead, right. Carpenter Adds an extra little bit where he says, if you don't want this baby, let me know. I'll stop it. You know, he gives her the choice. Yes. she decides, no, I want this. And the fact that he get- extends that choice to her is, I think, a very important moment for a scene that, you know, without that moment it would have been very problematic. But putting that in, is very That's Yeah, that's, that's a twist.
0: really good point. You know, um, you know, what? actually watching the movie, I was it was kind of just in the back of my mind as to sort of its progressive leanings because look, uh he Without Jenny Hayden, he he dies. He's captured by the the government. He's tortured, or you know, whatever. Or gets beaten up by Jason. <laughs> she, <laughs> right. She, right. She, Jenny
1: Hayden literally saves Starman from Jason in this movie. Yeah, great.
0: She she like doesn't she kick him or something? No, she. I guess she pulls out the uh, the gun, but yeah, like she, pulls, she takes charge. She saves him, you know. And then there is that moment that you mentioned because you know he he tells her that she has a baby, and I think you're right in. You know, in the hands of, you know, a writer and director that maybe weren't quite as skilled or thoughtful, it could have been a moment where it was just suddenly like, you know, oh, yay, baby, you know, flowers, um, blah, blah, blah. But it's like immediately after he tells her there's a slightly ambiguous moment there where she kind of is struck by, you know, the, the enormity of of what he's just told her. And he does give her that choice. No, sure. She she decides to keep it. And but you'd certainly understand why, you know, but there's there's an argument to be made, I think, for exactly what you're saying, which is that it was so important that he that he gave her that that choice right there. Right. Yeah, because,
1: I mean, there are a number of great movies that, you know, even though they're great, they do have moments that, you know, nowadays would be considered problematic. Like I was watching Mm -hmm. I was watching The Breakfast Club with uh, my friend in Italy who had never seen it. And there is the bit where Judd Nelson is under, under the table sticking his face in Molly Ringwald's crotch, which, you know, is, uh,
0: uh, you know. Yeah. Not what necessarily what we want to uh, encourage our uh, kids to do these days.
1: Yeah.
0: Whereas this film, you know, it definitely
1: adds that element, you know, that ultimately it's not Starman's choice. It's her choice. It's yeah. her body and she's the one who, you know, should, you know, be given license to decide, you know, whether she wants to carry this person to term she chooses, yes, but she's the one who chooses. And I think that's a very important element in this room. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, kind of going along on that theme is that ultimately, you know, the character that's basically based on Carl Sagan, uh, Mark Sherman, played by Charles Martin Smith, you know, he ultimately does choose not to do the the evil thing. Right. And he lets them go. Uh, and he's really happy about it. And, you know, there's also that. As much as I that, hate to stoop to symbolism. Uh, he has a, co- I think. Starman has a couple conversations, like one with with Jenny, and then one in that moment at the at the diner or whatever it is near the crater with um with Mark Sherman where he says, you know, you're you're a strange species, but here, let me tell you the things that I find beautiful about you. And, you know, he, he says some things, and these are based these are essentially really optimistic, hopeful things about humanity, right? That he's talking about. And so Uh, You know, he you you could imagine in a different movie where the alien, you know, lashes out and tries to destroy all the government vehicles and stuff because obviously humans are bad and they're trying to kill him. Right. But and so this just goes back to like, wow, what an optimistic movie full of heart for a John Carpenter movie. But I, I found it to be really impressive. And actually, it wasn't overbearing. You know what I mean? It was it was fairly subtle. But yet, it was still part of the fundamental DNA of this movie that it sort of has this optimism about, you know, humanity and you know, us being at our best.
1: And definitely, like it, it is, um, you know, how this movie came about. Uh, there, it is a very interesting story because you know, it was uh, one of the few movies that Carpenter did for a major studio. I think the last movie he did for a major studio was was Big Trouble in Little China, which came out right after this. Um, but his first movie for a major studio was The Thing, which he considers to be his best film. It's certainly a contender for his best movie. Like, The Thing is a remarkable, remarkable film. Uh, unfortunately, at the time it came out, it, it wasn't a bomb. Like, a lot of people mistakenly referred to it as a bomb. It didn't bomb. It made a very small profit, but it wasn't a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And as a result, a lot of things that Carpenter was slated to do fell through. He was originally going to direct the, the Stephen King film Firestarter... He was immediately fired off that shoot because of due to the reception that the thing received. Um, that led to him, you know, doing Christine, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, suited him more anyway. And he he said, you know, with Christine, he was just trying to find work. And I think in spite of that, he managed to pull together a very, very good movie and make one of the best Stephen King adaptations there is. And then a Starman came out immediately after After that, and a lot of people have speculated that perhaps this was his his attempt to do a more ET like movie, you know, Uh, to to cater more towards a a major you know studio audience because you know he mm -hmm. he did not write the script like most of his earlier films he he you know had a hand in writing them. This was a script that was already written. It was established that it was written at the time that ET came out.
0: Uh, at the end, uh, the so movie this is Carpenter's four quadrant picture. <laughs> four quadrant picture. That's that's great.
1: But in spite of that, it's still a great movie. It's still mm-hmm. one of his best movies, and he is able to do something that is very timeless, that is very lovely, and one absolutely one of the best films you know in the genre. And uh, and again, you know, it, it received a lot of critical acclaim when it came out. wasn't like a massive box office hit, but it was considered a bigger success than the thing was. And again, mm-hmm. that Bridges received an Oscar nomination. It was certainly you know good, uh, very good affirmation to Carpenter's skills as a Absolutely. director. Absolutely.
0: And you know, watching it this time, knowing that he got that nomination, like, like I could see it you know, his, his performance, like really, I mean, we talked about this already, but I just wanted to mention again, because it was just, it was just that good, you know? Yeah. yeah just that good. Both him, both him and Nancy Allen are great. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, and just, uh, for reference, Starman made, uh, $28,744,356, uh, at the box office. So I'm not sure what it's, uh, what its budget was. Um, doesn't, really seem to say here but um it was released the same week as david lynch's film dune and a week after the release of uh 2010 the year we made contact
1: let's see it looks like the budget for this movie was 24 million and it made 20 uh 28.7 million
0: domestically domestically that's not
1: including overseas it doesn't Um, include
0: like you know home video or anything like that either yeah
1: yeah, because it actually did—it did, was very successful on home video, and then, of course, they made a TV series out of it, so it must have caught somebody's attention. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas the Thing—the Thing cost $15 million and then made $19.6 million in the United States, yeah. so it made around—so both of them actually made—they um, they both made profits. They both made small profits, but I think at the time, since Starman was more warmly received, that did, you know, help, you know, bolster Carpenter's stature a little bit after, you know— what people at the time thought was a bad movie and they've since realized is a great movie, which is
0: the thing. Yeah. Well, Big Trouble in Little China came out next, but I think you mentioned that he might have actually filmed that before Starman. Oh, no. He uh, he filmed it after Starman.
1: Okay. Uh, but okay. what happened was that that was the last movie he did for a major studio because Big Trouble in Little China tested very positively. Like the, the test audience loved it. And, you know, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter thought they had a really big hit. And then basically what happened was 20th Century Fox botched the release because it came out the mm-hmm. same the same year as Aliens. And uh, oh. they, they, they put a lot of resources into Aliens. And then Big Trouble, in Little China, they just kind of like tossed yeah. out of the theaters, which is kind of what happened to the thing. And then Carpenter was, you know, upset with that. So he decided to go back to independent films with uh, Prince of Darkness being his next feature.
0: God. If if John Carpenter wasn't so incredibly talented of a filmmaker, he'd he got screwed so many times, man. Yeah, Jeez. And, and incidentally, he almost directed Interspace, uh with
1: uh, Dennis Quaid and Mark. Oh, I love that movie. I love which, that. Which, uh, yeah, Spielberg actually did want uh, want Carpenter on board. I'm not sure why it fell through. I don't know if Carpenter maybe maybe made some uh, maybe made some demands that you know the studio didn't agree to, or yeah. if he was or if he was not interested in the material. But uh, yeah, like it is interesting to think about how that movie would have turned out had Carpenter directed it. My guess is Kurt Russell probably would have played Tuck, played Tuck Pendleton instead of Dennis Quaid. Oh. Hmm. Cinematography probably would have looked, you know, hugely different than what Joe Dante did with it, although Joe Dante yeah. did a wonderful job with Interspace. That's so. that's
0: another movie I'd love to cover on this show at some point. Okay, so Oh, oh we absolutely got to Space's. Oh great. yeah, for sure. I mean, every time I hear that that song that they play in the movie, uh let me tell you about a place somewhere up in New York yeah. a ways. Yeah. Twist in the night away. That's yeah, what twist
1: Twisting the night away. They they play both the Sam Cook version and the Rod Stewart version during the end credits.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's every time I hear that song, I think of inner space. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. That's It's burned great. in my brain from childhood. Okay. Starman. So uh, let's we're coming up on about an hour, so let's start to to wrap up here. Is there any any other thing that you really wanted to get into before we finish up? Uh, with this? Any other aspect or story or, you know, thing you want to pick apart? Yeah,
1: the, There are a couple of elements in the script that appear to, you know, have been inspired by Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I consider Spielberg's best alien movie. It has some mm. issues with it, but I love it. Uh, they, uh, they do have a landmark they're going towards. In Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it's Devil's Tower. In Starman, it's Meteor Crater Arizona. So they do kind of have that kind of theatrical, you know, set piece that they end with. But uh, mm-hmm. still, I think... The best summation of the intimate nature of the film, and that it is it is more focused on the relationship of these two characters than its um, special effects or set pieces, is, you know, the final shot of the movie. Like, you don't see Starman descend up and, you know, sorry, ascend up back to the mothership. You see... The, the the whole the final shot of the movie is a long hold on Jenny Hayden's face yes. as she just watches him rise into yes. the sky and it's all it's the whole moment is played off of her performance. It's not yeah. bright Which lights and I think and special made it effects. all as powerful as it could possibly be, frankly. Yeah. It's not played off of Bright Lights and Special Effects. You know, it's just it's just Karen Allen's acting and it's so Good. Good. It's
0: a I, I beautiful think, movie. You know, you're totally right. And I think that this movie actually stands out as a really, really great example of how you, you need to earn the the special effects that you use in a movie for them to really be to be worth it. To Like, because, OK, sure, you can throw in like a bunch of fight scenes and explosions and stuff, but. The audience really is not going to care unless they care about the characters and the story. Right. And this is okay. Sure. They they did have some special effects in this movie. Maybe they didn't have the budget that like an Avengers film would have or something like that. But they earned every single second of of the special effects that they showed you know, to the point where you're so invested in the story that doesn't matter that it's like, you know, sort of in some cases, like middling to like pretty decent special effects for 1984. Like it's just part of the story and it just pulls you right along with it because they earn every single moment. And, you know, to your point, a lot of the choices that Carpenter makes is he makes you know, in favor of showing um, and developing the character relationship. And I think that that final shot, you know, on close up on Jenny Hayden and just pulling up into the sky was a much more effective way to end the movie than showing him like beamed up into the spacecraft or something.
1: Yeah, like the the film, it shows a remarkable level of restraint. And that's one of the things Mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed about Carpenter's films is with rare exception. There is a there is a great level of restraint, and there is a, a greater focus on you know how on the character interactions, which makes sense because Carpenter is a big fan of Howard Hawks, and one of the the trademarks of Howard Hawks movies is the banter, and and what do people remember most about you know Starman, but. The banter and with Starman, you certainly get some creative <laughs> moments, especially the the great yellow light sequence, which which oh, makes yeah. fun of which makes fun of everybody who's ever gunned it to try and make it through the yellow light, where he nearly kills them both. And she's like, "What were you doing? You said you knew the rules. I do know the rules. Green go, <laughs> red stop. Green go, yellow
0: go very fast." And <laughs> <laughs> she can't say anything to that because that's exactly what. <laughs> he observed Jacob. her doing. Yeah. That was great. I mean, so many, you know, little moments like that really added up to to make this such such a great such a great movie and such a believable arc of their relationship, you know. And of course, Jeff Bridges' performance really sells the fact that he's, you know, an alien trying to like figure out how to like clunk around in this human body.
1: Yeah, it's cer- it's certainly great because I've called it beautiful like twenty billion times on this episode. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> and and you know I, it was so clear to me how uh, how he had uh, an arc throughout that movie. Like he really does become so humanized over the course of this like you know road trip that they take together to the point where okay, at the very beginning he sort of like stands up. He he can't really talk yet. He like. You know, he, he kind of, like, shoots the gun. He he totters around. He's, like, over-pronouncing words and, like, clicking his tongue every time he tries to speak. He could barely talk. Then at the very end, you know, he's putting together pretty decent sentences. He sits down with her. He asks for Dutch apple pie. <laughs> you know what I mean? He tells her that he loves her. He gives her a kiss. So it's it's such a... God, what a what a compelling um what a compelling arc for that character and for well both their characters and just the relationship. Like it's constructed in such a way that you just buy into it, uh frankly. And it's kind of a it's kind of a ridiculous premise in a way, but it just it just really pulls you along for the ride and like I I just it's just so it's just so effective and compelling that I was really like I was kind of bracing myself to like spot horrible flaws in the movie because i hadn't seen it in so long and granted i'm a big carpenter fan but given the subject matter of it and that it's romance and stuff i was like ah like what am i in for i don't but it just turned out that it's it's still a great movie yeah
1: and i think the reason this movie is you know often very underrated in the john carpenter canon is because it is so different from a lot of the films he's done. Like, Carpenter is best known as, you know, a horror director. He's also done some great films in, you know, action and science fiction. And, you know, the the idea of him doing a science fiction romance, you know, from the director of Halloween and Mm -hmm. The Thing, you know, on the face of it sounds preposterous. And so I think a lot of people often, you know, forget that Carpenter was not a one-trick pony. He had skills in every genre. And God knows the the types of films that he could have done, that, you know, due to limitations, he wasn't able to do because, you know, Carpenter was a, is a big fan of Westerns. He wanted to do Westerns. Unfortunately, he got into Hollywood right when Westerns became passe. And, you yeah. know, and you do see his attempts to do Westerns a lot in films like, you know, Assault on Priest 13 and Escape from York and Vampires. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, this, uh, this he definitely said, you know, was inspired heavily by, you know, Howard Hawks. He loved the banter style of the script and that it was a road trip movie. And I do think you know people need to give him more of a chance, and you know view the bulk, view the the bulk of his filmography, especially the, the stuff that he did from like the late seventies to the early nineties. It's hit after hit. He yeah. has a consistently good filmography throughout the throughout all of the eighties and the latter half of the seventies and the first couple of years of the nineties. Like right up, pretty much everything from Dark Star to In the Mouth of Madness is. With 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 few
0: exceptions is, you know, just in the moment, win after Magnus win. is magnificent. Okay. Oh We're yeah. Definitely doing other Carpenter movies on this show. Oh. Well, you know, I think um those are actually some pretty good closing comments from us. So um unless you have anything else that you're really burning uh to, to say in your final comments, do you?
1: I think uh I think I pretty much covered, you know, everything that I wanted to say. This is a very underrated film. It's an yeah. underrated John Carpenter film. It's an underrated love story is a very underrated science fiction film and yeah I, th- I think I think it needs to be rediscovered because I, I do think in many ways it may be stronger today than when it came out I think that might be true actually I, th- I think it was a film that was ahead of its time and uh, I just think it's a very lovely sweet movie with with you know a dash of cosmic intrigue
0: you know it's <laughs> yeah just it's good. Yeah, stuff. it's 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 good stuff. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if you, you know, you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie in a long time, revisit it. I mean, I was far from disappointed that that's what I had done last night, you know, to prepare for this uh, episode. It, it really paid off in spades for me. If you haven't seen it and some and for some reason you listen to the spoiler part of this podcast, by all means, go watch the thing. I mean, it's, you know, as we've been saying it's really underrated and it still holds up so thank you everybody for listening to this episode please head over to uh, apple podcasts or your choice of podcasting platform and give us a five-star review and or rating that really does help out the show We do want to hear from you, your thoughts about this movie or uh, anything else to do with our show. And, uh, you know, if you want to suggest a topic for us or something, hit us up at uh, mechadragonshow at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at mechadragonshow, Instagram at mechadragonshow. And uh, we have a Facebook group called Mechadragon. So, um, and Eric, I want to thank you for coming back on the show again today. This was a really cool uh, conversation about Starman, and frankly, I'm really glad that uh, that I gave it a go and watched it again recently. Captain Will, it's
1: uh, great to be back again. I'm looking forward to many other voyages on your spaceship of pop culture. And to <laughs> Anybody who's curious about me, you know, I'm Eric Hansen. I work as a commentator at Screed Hum Entertainment. We publish content on a weekly basis, and I'm working on my next piece as we speak. And uh, I promise Captain Will, on our next voyage, I will interrupt you less. <laughs> okay, no I, I am but a lowly ensign who needs to show respect, but uh, I
0: get very enthusiastic about John Carpenter. <laughs> yes, well we need enthusiasm amongst our ensigns, that's for sure. All right, thanks everybody. Captain Will, signing out. Catch you later. Our music is Overworld by Kevin MacLeod from incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by attribution 3.0, creativecommons.org, slash licenses, slash buy, slash 3.0.